Hi, I'm Lowell. And I'm Aiden. And this is I Read the News Today. Oh, boy. We are not journalists. Pundits. Or flash mobs. But we do read the news. And we're here to talk about the shit that's going on. It is May 9th, 2019. What is happening in the world this week? It's crisis time! Oh, good. We are going to, I guess, be talking about the constitutional crisis that Nancy Pelosi and others have been talking about this week? Yes. Great. So what happened to cause this aforementioned constitutional crisis? So remember the Mueller report? We did talk about it in our very first episode. Yep. We did. Do you have anything more? Do you have a follow-up question? (laughs) Yes. Do you have anything more to to tell us about about this constitutional crisis? Yes. So the Mueller report has been subpoenaed by the uh, House of Representatives, and the current Attorney General, William Barr, has refused to turn it over. So I made a little bit of a primer here of five constitutional crises in American history. Just to clarify, this isn't all of the constitutional crises. Well, they, it's not all of them because there's not a there's not a defined list. Yeah, because is a constitutional crisis something that would have a specific definition? It's is it a legal term or is it a So it has a specific definition, but there's no like checklist of things Got that it. makes something a constitutional crisis. A constitutional crisis is a issue with a government that the basically the rules of the government is unable to resolve. Got it. So it's not there's like I said there's no checklist of items that makes something a constitutional crisis. Let's look at this history of yes. constitutional crises because I think that will give us more context for what is involved in a constitutional crisis. So I highlighted five of the biggest constitutional crises throughout American history. And the first one that I highlighted was the nullification crisis. Do you know anything about the nullification crisis? Have you heard of it? I had not heard about it before I started looking at your notes here. Okay, so the nullification crisis was a constitutional crisis in the United States that occurred between 1832 and 1833 during the presidency of Andrew Jackson. It primarily involved the state of South Carolina and the federal government, and it occurred after the federal government passed two tariff bills that the government of the state of South Carolina didn't want to have go into effect in South Carolina. So the government of South Carolina claimed that it had the ability to nullify any federal statute that it disagreed with. And there's nothing explicitly in the Constitution that says that that is or isn't the case. Okay. The way that this resolved itself is Congress responded to that action, the nullification of the tariff bills, by passing something called the Force Bill, which authorized the president to use military force against South Carolina to force it to recognize the tariff. Okay. Now, South Carolina, in response to that, withdrew its order nullifying the federal tariffs Mm -hmm. and passed a symbolic resolution to nullify the force bill. So it essentially allowed both sides of the argument to save face. The federal government was able to put the tariffs into effect in South Carolina. South Carolina had the tariffs go into effect and nullified symbolically the force bill, which put them into effect. Okay. So it allowed both sides to save face within the conflict. 
The second constitutional crisis that I highlighted is one that definitely parts of this you're familiar with. You're familiar with William Henry Harrison? Yes. Yes. Um, what's what's the one fact you know about William Henry Harrison? He didn't serve a very long yes. presidential term. <laughs> In fact, the shortest. Yes. Yes. William Henry Harrison, he was elected president and he, after giving the longest inauguration speech in history without a coat on. It was so cold that he got ill, got... Yes. uh, He got ill and died. Within within how many days of the inauguration? Within 30 days. So his vice president at the time was John Tyler. Now, the Constitution does does specify that in the event of the president's death, the vice president assumes the duties of the president. Now, there was a dispute over whether that means he assumes the duties of the president or he becomes the president. So whether he is actually the president or the acting president. Once he was dead, there was still a dispute whether or not the vice president would secede. Secede's not the right word, is it? Would would secede to would succeed? Yeah, succeed and secede are different things. We'll get to secession in just a little bit. Um, But this is succession, not secession. There's a little bit of semantics here because it's whether John Tyler would assume the duties of the acting president or become become the president president for the remainder of the term. Yes, I see. Similar to senators who yes who based on state laws sometimes there is a person appointed to be acting senator exactly and then there is a new election to determine who is going to replace them. I see. So that was that was the question. And so what did they decide? So this resolved itself by John Tyler basically claiming that the Constitution would make him the president in the case of the death of William Henry Harrison. So some members of Congress disagreed, and this is where the constitutional crisis comes into effect. So famously, People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive, John Quincy Adams, and uh, Henry Clay were two of the big congressional proponents that Tyler should not become president, but should become acting president. Okay. And this led to one of the notable presidential nicknames of the 1800s, his accidency. It's a pretty good one. Yeah, they called, and we'll get to hit, we'll. We'll get to another his accidency later. Okay. But ultimately, the Senate would vote to grant Tyler the title of president, and that became sort of the tradition within the government. And then the 25th Amendment was passed, which actually codified the presidential line of succession. All right. So that w- that resolved itself through congressional action, essentially. Yeah. That was also solved by... A compromise to some degree. Mm-hmm. What's next? So the next one is where we get to secession. Yeah, American Civil War. So seven states who were later joined by four more attempted to secede from the United States and form the Confederate States of America. The federal government, led by Abraham Lincoln at the time, refused to recognize the secession. And this led to the American Civil War. Never heard of it. So Wikipedia makes a bold claim saying that the American Civil War is the most studied and written about episode in American history, which may very well be true. I saw Lincoln with you, so I know you know about the American Civil War. Never heard of it. (laughs) That's, I mean, I... Gettysburg is a very nice park. That's all I'm saying. It's a national park. Very nice park. I don't know what happened there, but it's very pretty. Thousands of men (laughs) lost their lives. Oh, Thousands. Well, I guess I shouldn't have been whistling. Uh, I mean, none of them are here. Some of them still might have family. I would imagine a lot of them do. Living living children? Not living children. Well, th- so the last Civil War widows did die in the early 2000s. Nice. I'm glad you know that. Can you puzzle through that for a sec? Yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I'm done. I've gotten it. How did you get it? 
What? How did that? How did? How does that work? How did the last Civil War widows die in the early two thousands? Actually, no, I didn't get it. What did they did? Did some some of these these? Did they marry children? Yes, exactly. <laughs> when they were like ninety, exactly. That's awful. Yeah, I think it was in like the nineteen thirties. Surviving veterans of the American Civil War married like teenagers, and those teenagers died in the early 2000s, and they were the last Civil War widows. Well, if they had children, then that would be a different type of constitutional crisis, but we're not going to go into it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this was resolved through a war. <laughs> yeah. 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 A little little war. Yeah, it's an extreme example. Yes. Yeah. I the, think we know what happens there. Yeah, so the I mean, it was one? solved through, through the Civil War, Ultimately, it led to the period called Reconstruction, where the seceding states rejoined the Union. Great. Yeah. Um, and Wonderful. And the next one Pleasant. that I've highlighted is the 1876 United States presidential election. All right. What happened here? So in the 1876 presidential election, Rutherford B. Hayes- My man Rutherford with, with, with that beard. Yeah. Um, Phenomenal facial hair. And Samuel Tilden. So critique Samuel Tilden's facial hair for me, will you? None. Yeah. Didn't he know that he wasn't going to get elected? Not he didn't applicable. have a beard. Did he look around at all of the other people who had been president for like the past generation and see their facial hair? Was Grant right before? Yeah, Grant was right before this. And I think, yeah, he... Yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, here's how it goes in our presidential history. You got the Whig presidents, got the beard presidents, and then you got the modern presidents. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm doing a quick scroll, and the next president to not have facial hair was in 19, was, was in 1896. Yeah, so 20 years later. William McKinley, and it didn't end well for him. Yeah. The 1876 presidential election, Rutherford B. Hayes ran as the Republican nominee and Samuel Tilden ran as the Democratic nominee, and nobody has heard of President Samuel Tilden because of the 1876 presidential election. Basically, and this is a, this is a relatively sort of complex kind of issue that happened, okay. but what it really boils down to is both Hayes and Tilden claimed victory in the states of Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. Okay. The electoral votes in all of those states combined would give each man the presidency. I see. So the election was unresolved going into the, the new year. So this is very similar to the the Bush it is. Gore yes. uh, election. Yeah. So that would also have been considered a constitutional crisis? It, yeah, I believe that would be. And that yeah. one was solved by the, the Supreme Court. That was Bush v. Gore, the Supreme yeah. Court case. Yeah. I didn't highlight that one because it is very similar to this. Yeah. But the Congress... Um, established an electoral commission mm -hmm. to basically resolve the the election. And the electoral commission voted along party lines to give the votes in all three states to Rutherford B. Hayes, and thus he um, became president. It was still he, a controversial decision. At the, at the end of the day, he had 185 electoral votes to Tilden's 184. Yep, closest presidential election in history in terms of electoral votes. Wow. It was still controversial, so the Democrats derided Hayes as rather fraud, which <laughs> is low-hanging fruit, his fraudulency. We're, and we're really not doing nicknames as well anymore. That yeah. These are great. His fraudulency. Well, rather fraud I love. Yeah. His fraudulency is all his, right. Whatever. His accidency is just, we can't nickname another president Tricky Dick. Like, that's no, just. No, it's just there. Yeah. Yeah. 
you have one more speaking of and then, tricky dick. Yeah, speaking of Richard Nixon, um, the next one is the Watergate scandal. And the, the Watergate scandal is incredibly complex, and I had a very difficult time boiling this down to just the, like, a D-minus book report. Yeah, this on, is this is a, a four-sentence four sentence summary of the Watergate scandal that you, you put in our notes. Yes. Yeah. I'm impressed. Yes. So Congratulations. Essentially, Richard Nixon and his administration attempted to cover up their involvement in a break-in at the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. One of the sort of defining episodes of this was the Saturday Night Massacre, in which Nixon ordered his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, to fire the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, who was leading the investigation into the break-in. Elliot Richardson resigned in protest. The acting attorney general resigned in protest, and then the next man up, Robert Bork, ultimately did carry out the firing of Archibald Cox. What makes this a constitutional crisis? So the president was obstructing justice by trying to derail an investigation into his activities. All right, but what I'm coming to understand a constitutional crisis as, and I'm, I might still be wrong, mm-hmm. is a paradox within... That's a government's legal system. That is a good way to think of it. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's when there are two things happening in the government that can't rectify each other. Yes. So in that case, what was happening in the Watergate scandal that was well, paradoxical? The, the Nixon would also defy subpoenas. So Congress requested material from the Nixon administration yep. that they refused to provide. One of those things that they refused to provide was what became known as the smoking gun tape. Okay. So Nixon Nixon was recording the private conversations in the Oval Office. Yep. And one of the tapes that was subpoenaed and later turned over was a tape of him a few days after the Watergate break-in, discussing the break-in and how the administration would handle the public response to it. And this ran directly counter to basically two years of Nixon denying that he had any knowledge or involvement in the break-in. And we still don't know what Nixon's direct involvement in the Watergate, the break-in at the Watergate complex was, because he was pardoned by Gerald Ford. This his, result, his successor. Yes, So by the time the smoking gun tape was released, Congress was already considering impeachment against Richard Nixon. The smoking gun – and he – Nixon still had supporters amongst Republicans in Congress. But by the time – when the smoking gun tape came out, that support completely dried up. I see. And Nixon resigned from the presidency rather than face what he knew to be certain impeachment. So that's how the Watergate scandal, the constitutional crisis of the Watergate scandal resolved itself. There are, like I said, many unanswered questions because the pardon. So those are the examples you wanted to give about constitutional crises. I think that it gives us a a very good context about where we sit with this one. Mm -hmm. But just to be clear, since we're now defining this as a a paradox within the the foundation of the government, what exactly is that paradox? If, If we can put into terms, what are the two things that are at odds with each other? With the current, with the current, with this current, what's going on right situation. now? Situation. So yes. the Trump administration has issued a basically a blanket refusal to turn over any documents to Congress. So it's similar to the subpoena fight that was fought during the Watergate scandal. Yeah. Um, in addition, there's the issues of William Barr, the, the current Attorney General 
who has been subpoenaed to testify in front of Congress. And he did testify last week, but then the next day refused to show up to a hearing. Yes. So so what what's at odds with the, with each other from my understanding of it is that we have the constitutional powers of the Congress mm-hmm. to subpoena and to have access to materials by subpoena from the president and and any anyone else uh, who they need to have this information from and then we have the president's office which has has claimed the the power of presidential uh, executive privilege uh, yes executive pr- privilege yeah so those are the two forces that are at odds with e- with each other mm-hmm. they're two different forces with within our laws that are currently paradoxical because both sides are trying to use those those powers of their office against each other yes okay yeah I think that what we need to, now that we've kind of established what the crisis is, mm-hmm. could you tell me a little bit more about about these subpoenas? I don't want to say the biggest subpoena, but one of the main issues in this case is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, yep. um, who's a congressman from New York City. He subpoenaed the full unredacted version of the Mueller report. Okay. Was he specifically denied that or was that just part of the blanket denial of So he that was part that was the executive privilege claim. Ah, okay. Um, Trump declared that he will not turn that over claiming executive privilege. Okay. And so there's also the subpoena of William Barr to yes. testify. Mm-hmm. What else is there to know about these subpoenas? Don McGahn, who served as White House counsel for Donald Trump, and he is a key figure in the Mueller report. And he, I think, sat for like 30 hours of interviews with Mueller, has also been subpoenaed to testify. And I think he has um, refused to testify. Okay. There are definitely others. Those are the major ones. Those are the big ones. I mean, I think it's important to note that Don McGahn, the White House counsel for Donald Trump, former White House counsel for Donald Trump, he's a key figure in the Mueller report because the the redacted version of the Mueller report that we have shows that Trump ordered Don McGahn to fire the special prosecutor, which comes to shades of the Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live. The Saturday Night Live massacre. Yes, the Saturday Night Live. Chevy Chase killed everyone. (laughs) (laughs) The Saturday Night Massacre, where Nixon ordered his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, to fire the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox. And that has been that was a big worry during the entire Mueller investigation was the idea that Trump would order someone to fire Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller. What power does Congress have to, to make sure that they get what they need out of subpoenas, so, to enforce subpoenas? Yeah, Congress has the power of oversight over the executive branch. So it's part of checks and balances. Each of the branches have the the power to check the power of the other branches. For lack of a better word, I'm going to say power over and over again. Yes. Yeah. So the as part of the oversight that Congress can do, they can conduct investigations into the executive branch and the president's administration. So in this scenario, 
the House of Representatives, which is majority controlled by Democrats, is conducting investigations into Donald Trump and his administration's connections with Russia. And there are numerous other investigations that they're doing as well. Of course. Like the tax returns is another big one that's yeah. also being, that's like, that's another refusal. Yes. I guess the follow up of my question is it is Congress's responsibility to check the powers of. Yes of the other branches. My question is, in what way do they enforce that responsibility? So that's- What the, what options do they have for enforcing their subpoenas? That's kind of the, the sort of sticky issue right now. And yes. what's really causing the constitutional crisis right now is because they don't have a ton of power. Yeah, they don't have any any real direct enforcement. They, of course, the executive branch is in charge of the military, in charge of the police, in charge of mm-hmm. institutions that would would be involved in enforcing the law. What they've done is they have held bar in contempt yes. of Congress. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What does that mean for bar? Does contempt of Congress have a sentence with it? What does that legal action mean? Well, that's another kind of sticky issue because contempt of Congress, basically, when a person is held in contempt of Congress, their case is referred to the United States Attorney for the District of Columbia, which is fine. But ultimately, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia falls under the jurisdiction of the Justice Department, which is currently headed by the... Which is not currently, but has always been headed by the Attorney General, who is currently William Barr. So William Barr has been referred to... Well, he hasn't been referred for, for any kind of prosecution yet, but potentially he could be referred for prosecution to a court that ultimately he controls. Yes. So in other words... The attorney general is it has been asked to prosecute himself. Yes. Is there any actual meaning to holding him in contempt of Congress? Well, that's kind of that's the question. That's the question. If someone else was held in contempt of Congress, would there be a warrant out for their arrest? That, so that's, yeah, that's, I mean, I found the, I found this. The there crux. is a there is a criminal offense called contempt of Congress, and the penalty for that is not less than one month, nor more than twelve months in jail, and a fine of not more than one hundred thousand dollars. I mean, the thing is, this has precedent, uh, okay. very recent precedent. There has been a an attorney general who has been held in contempt of Congress. Yes. Okay. Who? Eric Holder. And what was Eric Holder held in contempt of Congress for? So he was held in contempt of Congress for refusing to hand over documents related to the investigation of the Fast and the Furious scandal. What is that? The Fast and the Furious scandal is a... Was Vin Diesel involved? No, it was a scandal involving something having to do with guns that were provided to drug cartels within Mexico that ultimately led to the death of a federal, um, I think, I believe a federal marshal. So this was a this was a minor scandal within the Obama administration, and ultimately, the investigate the congressional investigation led by Republicans in Congress, who at that point held the majority, held him in contempt. Um, the vote was two hundred and fifty five to sixty seven. A lot of Democrats walked out rather than vote. Why? In protest. In protest of. This this was one of the many s- supposed scandals that the 
Obama administration was involved in. Fast and the Furious was an operation that was begun under President George W. Bush and became this... It was named definitely by the Bush era. Yeah. Ultimately, it became a scandal with the Obama administration because of the death of the federal marshal. It it was another one like the IRS targeting of conservative groups scandal, where it was such a big deal on Fox News and other conservative news organizations, but there's really not an underlying crime there that was committed by anybody. That was why so many Democrats walked out in protest. They, it was also they the f- knew that they were going to lose the vote, and they yes. said that we're not going to we're not going to participate in this. Exactly, and it was also the first time that an attorney general had been held in contempt of Congress. Okay, yeah, and now it's happened two times. Now it's in two. Ten years. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, that case was dismissed by the courts. Okay. That contempt case. So that brings us into a very good template of what's the next steps for this. And that's kind of the thing. I mean, that's why I wanted to highlight those constitutional crises from the past, because each of those has a resolution to them. And this one... We're still early in the process, but we don't know how this is going to resolve itself. So what are the next steps? Are the next steps, this has to go through the courts? Yes. Is that the only way to rectify this situation The next step is this has to go through the courts. And that's sort of what happened with the last couple of prominent officials that were held in contempt of court. I mean, this is kind of how constitutional crises work. Like, they don't really get resolved within two days. One of our examples took a civil war to resolve. From from the examples that we had, we saw... A lot of it was congressional action. Yeah, we saw three major routes. One being congressional yeah. action. Mm-hmm. One, Which would be the impeachment route. That's the yep. way that it would end. One being, one being the courts. Another being either a secession. Yeah. And I'd say that... Secession, Armed conflict. I'd say that the the opposite version of secession is a a party backing down. Yeah. So it's either either someone leaving the country or backing down. I, I would say that those are two sides of the same coin. Yes. Yes. We, we said it. Well no, you're you're correct. And I don't think I mentioned this, but the election of 1876, one of the sort of compromises, so the Democrats would lose that election. But Rutherford B. Hayes agreed to withdraw federal troops from the South that okay. had been in there since the Civil War, since the end of the Civil War. I see. Effectively ending a Reconstruction. Okay. So there, there was a sort of give and take on both sides there as well. That's a good start to this conversation. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk a yeah, whole lot more about this. certainly going to be news developing about this o- over the next week. So with that... I think we'll Is take that, our break now. Are we now 0 for 6 in terms of getting solutions to big governmental issues? Well, this is a very, very solutions-oriented yeah, podcast. Our, our subpoena power is completely toothless. Well, I mean, there's two of us. We could... An old man gumming up an apple because of how <laughs> few teeth he has. We could find some bats or something. I don't get that. Oh, I'm saying that we we could handle it mafia style. Oh, oh, see, because when you said bats, I thought of bloodsuckers. Oh, uh, no, I thought like uh, we could take some baseball bats and, and bring them bring them to Congress and say, hey, we got to solve this. We're, we're pivoting. This is now a mob, mob justice podcast. Yeah, mob justice podcast. Yeah. All right. So with that, I think we're going to take our break. 
Thank you for listening to the Billy Joel's birthday edition of I Read the News Today. Oh, oh boy. boy. Billy's now 70. No more of those 69 Billy Joel jokes. We're very sorry. If you would like to rate and review our show on iTunes or Spotify or any other place that you might be listening to this, we would really appreciate it. If you would like to send us weird news articles, you can send those at our Twitter, at NewsOboy, or our email, newsoboy at gmail.com, and we would very much appreciate it. I want to thank our first person to send us a article, David Brummer. We are not using his article today, but keep trying, David. And we want to welcome you to the last couple sections of this episode. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. So we're now going to be looking at some weird news. All right. If you would like to click this page... I'm going to click the link, not the page. Yeah, the, the link page. All right. A not-so-fond look back at Action Park, America's scariest amusement park. So this is about a New Jersey amusement park that was notorious for head injuries, broken bones, <laughs> horrific wounds, and even deaths. New Jersey's now defunct Action Park. Yeah, this is a good opening paragraph. Which is so well-known for injuries and deaths that it was sometimes called Traction Park. And Class Action Park. Which traction, cla- traction Park is really good. Class Action Park is choice. Yes, it very much is a class action. Oh, God, I'm cutting that one out. <laughs> Are you the son of two patent attorneys? <laughs> so, though, though it has been closed for more than 20 years, Action Park remains an object of enough fascination that videos routinely pop up. So, this is an article from HuffPost that is basically a a wrapper for a video. So we will now watch said video. Okay. So the video wasn't that helpful. So we're now on the Wikipedia page because Action Park is a an absurd premise. Can you tell me what you've seen so far on Well, this? the first thing that I was drawn to is one of the only pictures on the page, which is of the attraction in the water park. <laughs> The uh, water park area of Action Park, it's called Cannonball Loop, and it's the most buckwild water slide I've ever seen in my entire life. This It's a 30-foot tall loop? That's a 30-foot tall loop? Yep. I'm, I'm now looking at this another— This is going to be another look at how big this fish is. Yeah, it is. Look at how big that loop is. What else was going on there? Well, I mean, there's more in just the looping water slide. So they had to offer employees $100 to test it. Equivalent to $233 in 2018. Some of the test dummies that were sent down before the opening of the ride were decapitated and dismembered. What? Those who rode the cannonball loop have said that more safety measures were taken than was otherwise common at the park, which is... I enjoy (laughs) roller coasters. I like looping roller coasters. The great thing about a looping roller coaster is you're, at all points, your body is attached to the track. I don't like them. I don't like anything about them. And that's it. That's that's all I have for you. in, In a water slide, in a loop in a water slide, there's nothing... That's preventing you from hitting the other bit during the yeah, loop. Yeah, no, you could just you could just smash down. Yeah, two guests died at the park in 1982 within a week of each other. 
That's a lot of DP, DPW. Deaths per week? Deaths per week. Yeah, that's a high DPW. The second person who died on that ride was enough to permanently close the ride. The first one, eh. Despite this, people continued to come to the park in massive numbers. The park's fortunes began to turn with two deaths in the summer of 1984, two years later, and the legal and financial problems that stemmed from the ensuing lawsuits. State investigation of the misconduct in leasing of state land to Action Park led to a 110-count grand jury indictment against the nine related companies that ran the park. That's the class action. Yes. How this thing existed is amazing to me. So are you familiar with the work of New Jersey? <laughs> yes, I am. Anything is legal in New Jersey. Yeah. So, I mean, in fairness, some of these fatalities were not... Okay, in fairness, some of the fatalities at this park were not what? So, they one one was a heart attack. Okay. One was a heart attack. Another, another was a guy getting out of his kayak on the aptly named Kayak Experience. Nice. Um, who came too close to a section of live wiring... And was electrocuted. So I'm going to put that on him. I don't know about that. The live wires should not have been a exposed. Of, well, a shocking number of drownings. How, so how many total people have been claimed? Six. How many of those were drowning? Three. Wow. 50%. There was alcohol available on the ground. everybody. With similarly relaxed enforcement of the drinking age as well as other restrictions in the park. Doctors treating the injured often reported that many of them were intoxicated. All right. So fatalities. 19-year-old park employee was riding, an employee was riding this alpine slide when his car jumped the track and his head struck a rock, killing him. So I'm going to put that on Action Park. Yep. 1982, a 15-year-old boy drowned in the tidal wave pool. Also going to put that on the park. That is probably a combination of park and other things because the 15-year-old was probably drunk. Yeah. And uh, they also probably didn't have a lifeguard from the sounds of things. August 1st, 1982, a 27-year-old man from Long Island got- This was the electrocution. Got out of his tipped kayak on the kayak experience to ride it. While doing so, he stepped on a grate that was either in contact with or came too close to a section of live wiring. That is on the park. Okay. <laughs> he stepped on a metal grate and got electrocuted. But if that was... It in, was not... He wasn't... That was in the water, right? For this, it, it section looks, of live wiring for the underwater fans. Okay, yeah. Water, and I am the scientist of the two of us, No, conducts electricity. You're right. Nailed it. But the concept of being in water should not cause you to be electrocuted. Why do we get out of the water when we notice that there's thunder? Okay, there was no way to notice that you were going to get electrocuted. If you get in the water and it's hurty. Yes, you're already dead, Aiden. <laughs> He was already dead. Well, I agree. He is already dead. <laughs> exactly. That is definitely. Wouldn't it be on a real park? bummer if any of the um, families of the victims listened to this episode as yeah. we goof on their. I mean, we do know some people from New Jersey. In 1984, a fatal heart attack suffered by one visitor was unofficially believed to have been triggered by the shock of the cold water in the pool beneath the Tarzan swing. That one's. Who knows? 
On August 27, 1984, a 20-year-old from Brooklyn drowned in the tidal wave pool. Who knows? That, you know, the, the, the waves might have been too big. July 19, 1987, an 18-year-old drowned in the tidal wave pool. So that tidal wave pool yeah. is is a monster. How many how many is it for a serial killer? Because that that might technically qualify as a serial killer. We we have an inanimate serial killer killing once in 1982, once in 1984, and once in 1987, and the pattern is they were all probably drunk. They closed as usual on September 2nd, 1996, believing they were going to reopen the next year, but they kept pushing back the opening date. And finally, on June 25th, 1997, uh, it was announced that they were going to cease all operations. That, that was all of the company's operations, including Action Park. The interesting thing is that in 2010... The whole Mountain Creek ski area and water park was sold. Under the new ownership, the name of the water park was changed back to Action Park, starting with the 2014 season, allowing the tidal pool to claim it do- further yeah, it doesn't, victims. It do- this is not a very clear paragraph. It does not say that, like, it then opened. They just re- restored the name back to Action Park for two years, but then they reclaimed the name to Mountain Creek Water Park in That's 2016. That's kind of like if your last name is Bundy and you have a baby boy and name him Ted. Yeah, that really is. It's 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 as if you're begging for trouble. Yeah. So that's Action Park. Yeah. Thank you for taking this journey with me. Would you now like to go to the uh, Wikipedia that we're going to do now? We'll, we'll find a new name. The Wikipedia, the Wiki of the Week? We'll find a name. W-O-T-W? Yeah, we'll find a name for it. All right, yeah. So uh, can you hover over that and tell me what you see? I see the words wicked and the word Bible. Wicked Bible? What is this? All right, click on it. (laughs) The Wicked Bible, sometimes called Adulterous Bible or Sinner's Bible, is an edition of the Bible published in 1631 by Robert Baker and Martin Lucas. It's meant to be a reprint of the King James Bible. Why is this a wicked Bible? So the name derives from a mistake that was made by the typesetter (laughs) in the section relating to the Ten Commandments, where they omitted the word not in the sentence, thou shalt not not commit adultery, changing the sentence to thou shalt commit adultery. Nice. That's great. The majority... Oh, this is too bad. The majority of the Wicked Bible's copies were immediately canceled and burned. And the exact number... This was 1693... 1631, by the way. Yeah. And the exact number of extant copies remaining today, which are considered highly valuable by collectors, is thought to be relatively low. I've seen an estimate that says there are only 11. That's too bad. One copy is in the collection of rare books in the New York Public Library. And is very rarely made accessible. Uh, Okay. The British Library in London had a copy on display tragically before I went there. If if I ever got like a few million dollars, I'd buy this. I don't. You could buy a couple for a few million. Well, I would. I would need some money to live on. Oh, okay. I wouldn't just spend all of my money. You don't want to get the complete set. No, I don't need all of them. Okay. In 2008, a copy of the Wicked Bible went up for sale online. Because if you have the complete set, that ha- that gives you the power to banish adultery forever. 
or with a snap of your do finger. Do all of the adultery? I think it would probably be that you control adultery. <laughs> I am adultor. <laughs> I will. I determine who can and who cannot. So I do also want to direct your attention to the see also link. Okay. See also. Bible errata? Yes. If you could click on that real quick. Great. So this is a list of all Bible errors. <laughs> Throughout history, printers... Printer's errors and peculiar translations have appeared in Bibles published throughout the world. This one's fun. So a lot of these are a lot of these are goofy. It's just names that were misplaced or words that were put in where they shouldn't have been. I would like you to read um, Ed, uh, Edmund Beck's Bibles. Edmund Beck's Bibles. <laughs> oh no. Also known as the Wife Beater's Bible from 1549 and or 1551. A footnote to Peter 3.7, inserted by Beck, reads, And if she be not obedient and helpful unto him, endeavoreth to beat the fear of God into her heed. Head, but it, they would have said heed. That thereby she may be compelled to learn her duty and it great so it gets it get the the king james ones are the Edmund best beck's a fucked up son of a bitch well do you know i mean do you know anything about the the printmaking process did your school never take you yeah. on a trip of colonial philadelphia yeah, but this one is definitely not an accident have you print a full page of um a 1700s era copy of the philadelphia inquirer I I didn't. That seems very specific to your neighborhood. Okay. Uh, we didn't go to Philadelphia ever. Okay. In my high school, because right. why? But this this one doesn't seem like an error. Edmund Beck put this in on purpose. I also like I like the Sin On Bible <laughs> from 1716, which reads "Sin On More" rather than "Sin No More." <laughs> <laughs> Who's more? Where am I going to find more? Well, I think sin on more, meaning sin more. Sin on more. Uh, the Fool's Bible from 1763 reads, The fool hath said in his heart there is a God, rather than there is no God. <laughs> which, is, which is good. The printers were fined 3,000 pounds and all copies ordered to be destroyed. Ah, that's too bad. The Wife Hater Bible from... 1810, wife replaces life in the edition, making Luke 1426 redundantly read, If any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own wife also, he cannot be my disciple. Really, really uh, about, about them wives. I like the Affinity Bible from 1927. That includes the line, a man may not marry his grandmother's wife. Oh, that's nice. Which makes it impossible to be one's own grandfather. Are you not familiar with the country song, uh, I'm My Own Grandpa? No, I'm not. All right. Well, that will be, uh, we'll put a pin in that. That'll yeah, be, we'll listen to that That'll be later. a future article. Blasphemous comma Bible. Several editions of Luke 2332 palindrome reads... And there were also two other malefactors, crucified with Jesus, should have read. And there were also two others, 
malefactors. In other words, one missing comma makes Jesus a malefactor. Yes. This is a nice a nice article. Yeah. There's also we we skipped over it, but there's also the Judas Bible which contains a misprint in Matthew 26:36 in which the name Judas appears instead of Jesus. And it, it, instead of destroying this one from 1613, they just put a slip of paper and pasted it over the misprint. Now, I do want to um, point out who was the printer of the Judas Bible. Let me read this whole thing since this is actually the full full text of it. The Judas Bible from 1613, the Bible ha- has Judas, not Jesus, saying... Sit ye here while I go yonder and pray. Second folio edition printed by Robert Barker, printer to King James I, is held in St. Mary's Church, Totnes, Devon, UK. In this copy, the misprint has been covered with a small slip of paper glued over the name of Judas. Now, does the name Robert uh, Barker um, ring any bells to you? No. You'll recognize him as the man who printed the the Wicked Bible... Oh, the same Bible that got us onto the page for Bible Arata. So, in other words, Robert Barker was a very bad printer. Yeah, and he was, I believe, the <laughs> the worst editor there was. Yeah, he was a printer. I that, or to, he was just a Satanist. He was also a printer to the king. Yeah, King James, James the First of England. Yeah, you know the who one who had that, also been printer to king, Queen Elizabeth the First. I think I think that he might have just been a Satanist. Did he fail upward? In such a such a way? It's very possible. So that's the Wicked Bible. I thought you might hear the word wicked in a different way. Doesn't it like mean wicked? Doesn't it mean awkward? It doesn't doesn't mean awesome where you're from? Yeah. yeah. I did think that at, yeah. for a second. Like, is this is this a wicked pissa Bible? Yeah. I'm I'm not familiar with Wicked Pissa. That's a thing that people oh. apparently think that Bostonians say, but I've never heard it. I said the word water earlier in the episode, and I had to consciously not say water. Good job. Yeah. Let's wrap this thing up. All right. Do you want to do that that last headline? Yeah. But first, I want to see what Barbara King Solver looks like. Okay. What? Yeah, it seems about right. She wrote the Poisonwood Bible. Cool. Ready? Yeah. And by yeah, I mean no. Okay, Yes. Can you read that headline for me? All right. People are putting cannibals up their bum. Nope. People are putting cannabis up their bums and vaginas. Oh, I did it so bad. To have better (laughs) sex. I did it so bad. (laughs) That I turns into an L so easily. It does. Anyway, that has been our show for the week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. I have for this this period of time been low i plan to remain aiden thank you for listening and have a great week